0: Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasting and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality. You dig. Jason is a front-pocket theologian, back-pocket philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band.
1: All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. You see this? This is my boomstick. 12-gauge double-barrel Remington. S-Smart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. That's right, this sweet baby was made in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Retails for about $109.95. It's got a walnut stock, cobalt blue steel, and hair trigger, that's right, shop smart, shop smart. you got that? This week we blend the 901 soul with 270 bluegrass notes. I jump on the phone with two of the smartest guys I know, Dr. Corey Latta and Justin Patton. Corey has a BA in Biblical Studies, MA in New Testament Studies, MA in English, and a PhD in Literature. He has taught in Christian higher education and served in ministry for over 10 years. Corey writes and teaches on C.S. Lewis, Christian Worldview, Theology and Literature, New Testament Studies, Apologetics, and Biblical Theology. He has published several books, including Election and Unity and Paul's Epistle to the Romans, Functioning Fantasies, Ideology, Theology, and Social Conception, the Fantasies of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and many more. Corey and his wife Jennifer have two sets of twin children, two, Justice in London and Augustus and Emma Jane. For Justin, it all started with a nutty bar as all great friendships do. Little Debbie's significant role in our lives aside, Justin is an award-winning audio engineer, media specialist, and professor at Murray State University and lay theologian. Corey, Justin, and I tackle the move of culture towards binary thinking. John Cougar's authority song, sort of, C.S. Lewis and the loss of civil discourse, the value of tradition and systems, loss of logic, and ad hominem fallacy thinking. So sit back, buckle up, and adjust the rear view. The exits for Colliersville and Franklin are just ahead on this week's episode of Nashville to Memphis. It seems to be that there's this us-versus-them mentality when we're talking about issues. And so is it just uh, – why is our culture moving towards binary thinking? Like if, if we don't agree on every single thing, then you're the enemy. Justin White, what do you think is going on there?
2: Well, I – you know, I – I have a very convoluted and crazy answer. It all started with Martin Luther. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay, not, so, seriously, um, you know, Martin Luther came along, right, and challenged authority in a way that, you know, the world had never really seen authority challenged before, right? And so people started getting these ideas that we didn't have to sort of, um, you know, stay underneath Somebody uh, we could actually think for ourselves, we could read the Bible for ourselves and come to our own conclusions about things a little bit now Luther didn 't necessarily mean for that to to go as far as it did, and it certainly went a lot further, I think than he intended it to go in a lot of cases. Um, but you know, even to this day, you have um, traditions where people don't rock the boat they they follow whoever the authority figure is in their life, you know whether that 's a priest or, you know, whoever um speaking in religious terms. Uh and then you've got people who who say, "No, no, we're, you know, we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to challenge things and and try to figure stuff out and so on and so forth." Um and I used to be very much in in the camp of, you know, throwing off the shackles and and thinking for ourselves. But I do think that here now in in the last few years I've started to see some of the wisdom <laughs> in uh being careful with uh with that because mm-hmm. if you don't have a system for, you know, trying to validate ideas at all and it just comes down to whether you're passionate about something makes it true or not, then, you know, we end up with what we what we see today a little bit, I think, where it, where nobody really feels like they have to vet their ideas. They just think yeah, you know, I this is how I see it after having reflected on it for all of ten seconds, and this is how all my friends see it. And of course, we're all very homogenous, so we don't have to worry about any you know challenges to our thinking. Um, I think a lot of what we see is this uh, this lack of patience. I think Corey talked about this a little bit already uh, at the very beginning. Um, you know, we we don't. Uh, we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to, and we're not giving other people any benefit of the doubt at all in many cases. You know, um, I uh, I didn't vote for Trump, but I wouldn't go so far as to say I think Trump is a racist and a bigot. He might be, but I, I don't have any hardcore proof of that, right? Right. Uh, so therefore, I, I'm going to assume the best <laughs> and not say, well, yeah, he's totally a racist, bigot, blankety, blank, blank, which is what people say of not only Trump, but anybody who would support Trump, right? They, they take it a step further and say, all these people that I don't even know personally who voted for Trump are also these horrible, horrible creatures, which I think is when it, when it goes into pure absurdity land, and hopefully anybody who even pretends to try to be objective would disagree with that.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think uh, we've lost. I mean, it, it. This is we're so guilty of the ad hominem fallacy, which is you know you can personally attack somebody, and somehow some way that attack erase their point. So I, I want to say this on both sides. If we're talking about politics, well, who, who cares that he's a, a racist or a bigot from a logical position standpoint? Let's say he is. Um does that necessarily now it could, but does it necessarily uh make his policy on you know this matter, that matter right or wrong? Not at all. Um uh a raging alcoholic could tell me it's a bad idea not to drink too much and just because he's an alcoholic doesn't negate his point. Um sure. we we've just sort of lost the ability to think logically and we're we're all guilty of this ad hominem fallacy where we you know attack a person because we don't like their character or we disagree with them or whatever. And somehow think that frees us from our obligation to their point. And the ring of ideas, um, it's ideas you have to contend with not people. So I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a fairly conservative guy and go right on most issues. If we're talking about politics, Um, but I can't just blindly accept all positions coming out of the Republican Party, or all, all policies being um, pushed by President Trump, simply because I'm a Republican, I, I have to uh, weigh each of these issues based on their their merit and the evidence for or against them. Uh, I mean, it's really just that we're just talking about logic. It's just the recovery of logic. Um, I don't think, and I think this, you know, this is not a social media issue. This is a public education issue. Uh, we're just just not taught this anymore. It's just not, it's not taught the college level. I mean, Jason, my goodness, you and I know this. Um, our, our students just do not know how they don't know syllogisms. They don't know how to move from one point to another without committing some sort of fallacy. They don't even know, uh, what it is to, to, you know, find a peer reviewed journal article for example, which which,
1: Wikipedia doesn't count.
3: That's right. And the whole point of pushing peer reviewed journal articles is this. So we will sift through biased opinion that's unchecked. Uh, We'll sift from, you know, through that and get to the actual uh, data that's been vetted and, uh, you know, pass the test of logic and credence and authority and all that stuff. Um, We just have
2: lost that.
1: Yeah, J- Justin works in higher ed too. He works at a public institution. Uh, oh, but
2: okay. gotcha. um, yeah, we have it all straight.
1: Yeah, the, pub- the public institutions have none of the issues that the private schools. <laughs> uh, no, I to bring this back, it's a great time to put in. I, I found that, like a lot of Lewis in the Abolition of Men of Man, there's yeah. a quote says an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful, but. An open mind about the ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or of practical reasons, is idiocy. If yes. a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. He can say nothing to the purpose. Like so, now to bring in a C.S. Lewis starter on civil discourse. Unpack that for us, Corey. You're the you're the resident expert on Lewis.
3: Yeah, well, it's just that uh, open-mindedness by itself isn't a virtue. <laughs> it depends on the topic. Um, right. Open-mindedness to use of crack cocaine is not a virtue. Um, open-mindedness concerning immigration policy will be a virtue if it means that my open-mindedness creates critical conversation, processing information objectively, uh community where I share my ideas with others and have them sharpened by other people. But if the if the idea itself is inherently uh worthless or destructive, my being open-minded to it's not going to change that. If anything, it's going to allow this sort of poison in. Um so it's not just the quality of the ideas, uh I'm sorry, it's not just the openness to the idea that matters. It's the quality of the ideas to which we're open. Um, right. and 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 you know we've got to get back to this place where we can uh, I just heard a quote today that I thought was fitting that uh, particularly people of faith people of faith need to argue more and fight less mm. we need to debate um Western civilization is built on this this is this is, this is the the Socratic method this is democracy we need to debate and debate vigorously, but to fight um on the level of you know petty position or Identity politics or or bad ideas—that's um, really, I think, what you're seeing culturally. That's that's really kind of leading to the downfall of 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 society in many ways. And what Lewis championed was sound ideas and vigorous debate. I mean, the Inklings existed for this reason. They were ruthless with each other at times, um, but because the ideas were worth it, the ideas could take the beating. Um, they were enduring ideas. Ideas that were nonsense were treated as nonsense.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, does it come down to like a lack of humility? Like in the in the for us to even conceive that we could be flawed or make mistakes or be open to the challenge of a point of view. I think there's some loss in that. I'm even going through that with. Um, well, hopefully he won't listen to this with one of my sons is is <laughs> so like Uber 13 point Calvinist. That he's just like, I'm so glad to anyone, hear that.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: not, anyone who's not a Calvinist, like, I just don't know if they can, if they have a true relationship with the Lord. And I'm like, whoa, 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 simmer yeah. down. Like, <laughs> you're like, come on now. Like, and, and I'm not saying, and when I say that, there's even this position of, do you not agree? And I'm like, well, I can be a Calvinist and not be so, I'm not so shocked at the idea that there's something I hold dear. That I could be completely wrong on. There's sure. very few things that I hold close-fisted. There are things that I do, but they are fewer in number. If you, I guess I'll say this: the older I get, I hold fewer things close-fisted. But the very few things I do hold close-fisted, I hold them very tightly. Mm-hmm. But there's, the, but the number of them, the volume of them, is less than it used to be. And there's just so much I don't see as a big deal. So is there a lack of you guys feel like there's a lack of humility in our ideas because to say, I'm going to listen to you and give you the chance to potentially change my mind because I could be wrong is something that people don't seem to be able to handle anymore.
2: Well, I think a, a 13-year-old, 14, 16, 22-year-old, they're going through a time where you you kind of expect that, right? I mean, I think back to when I was in my 20s and I, had, I was so much smarter then than I am now and it's uh you know i was so much more and there's a lot of that's just passion you know and so to an extent that passion's probably a good thing because it it keeps you chasing after the truth you know we don't want to just stop chasing after truth so uh that's a good thing i think to 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 want to chase after it and be so dog you know so uh not dogmatic with other people but you know uh, so locked in to to seeking after truth um of course i agree with you totally jason that That uh, In fact, as you were saying that, I was thinking of another uh, Calvinist, uh, Steve Brown, who has this book called uh, Things I've Learned Since I Knew It All, and um, and he goes through all these things where he just says, you know, God is bigger than I thought he was, Uh, Jesus has more grace than I thought he did, you know, and and everything, you know, the, the book just goes on and on along those lines. Um, And and it really makes you realize that, yeah, we we don't understand. and, And hopefully as we grow in wisdom, just as you said, we hold tight to the things that matter. And we realize that some of these other things really don't. Thank you so much for listening
1: to Nashville to Memphis. I hope you enjoy it. I truly value your time and appreciate your listenership. Please go on iTunes and give us a rating. Five stars helps. It goes a long way. Write a sentence or two. In addition to that, if you wouldn't mind, I love doing this podcast. It is definitely a passion play for me. But like everything else in life, it does cost a little bit of money. So if you would, go to Spotify and follow the Jason Lee McKinney Band. Give us a stream or two and put us on your playlist. And then also go into iTunes and download a song or two. We have five albums out. And it truly goes a long way. Every download counts. Every single one. Share us with your friends. Check it out. Support the podcast. Support the band, jasonlee com. Uh, spread it around to all your friends, neighbors, and fans, yourself, and I truly appreciate listening to Nashville to Memphis. Back to the show. So, Corey, let me ask you this, because you teach more on theology, and and, and, and maybe I'm um, feel free to tie in Lewis with this, but is it a is it pride that keeps us from the thought of being even theologically wrong? Or is it fear that if I that if, man, by golly, if those preterists are right about revelation, then the whole thing falls apart. And I just don't see things, and that going back to the binary, I don't see things as, you know, whether or not someone's a, a nihilist about, uh, about hell or they It's like, it, it, to me it's like, and I'm not trying to get into a theological discussion. I'm just saying going, hey, you know what you guys actually agree on is that God punishes sin.
0: Right, like, you right. know what I'm
1: saying? Like, so it, it's not that I'm saying somebody shouldn't hold a view or you can't be passionate, but to get into the, is it, is it pride that wants to make us hold on to that? Or is it fear to even listen to the other side? And at a minimum go, huh, that's interesting. I don't agree, but that's interesting. I see how you made your point. I see how you came to that conclusion. Cause there's a lot of things. I do that. I see how you came to that conclusion. I don't agree with you, but mm-hmm. I can see your logic. You know I mean? Uh, I mean, kind of, so even in theology, how do we maintain uh, civil discourse, and what what keeps us from it? Is it pride or fear, or something else?
3: I do think, I think people are fearful because they're proud. Um, you know, Lewis calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind. Um, he says it's the first and chief sin, it's the sin of the devil, it's the sin ultimately of Adam and Eve, and it's the wellspring of all other sins. So... Uh, and I, 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 hold to this as well. It, my lust problem, my greed problem, my anger problem, they're really pride problems because I am deeply unhappy and unaccepting of the fact that I'm not God. Um, um so I cope with my uncontrollable reality out of all these other things, right? The anger and fear and because I'm, uh, on the center of my own universe, you know, when when NASA just announced that what is it the uh, the Trappist star has seven exoplanets, right? Uh, yeah, resembling Earth. I'm I'm really offended that at the center of that uh, new universe isn't me. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of the way I, I I in my own mind am the sun around which everything orbits. Um, and when things don't line up in reality that way, I'm just pissed about it or i'm I'm mm. terrified about it, or whatever you know um and I think uh intellectual property and truth and opinions play into this uh sin of pride um all too all too perfectly. The most obnoxious people I've ever met in my life are people in seminary or fresh out of seminary um and i was I was both of those guys, and it's because there's this idea. It's it's just ridiculous to look back and think that one could ever, you know, actually believe this. But there's this idea that not only do you know a lot, but you know a lot about the most, uh, you know, uh, sacred uh, book in the world, most sacred k- kind of knowledge in the world, knowledge of God. There's this great little book that I had to read. I was very thankful for it, and I've gone back to it many times. My first class in seminary, because more uh, mature, wiser people knew this. Uh, about young seminarians first class I was assigned or or first class I had, I was assigned a book called a, a little exercise for young theologians. It's a tiny little book and it's by a German theologian, Helmut Thielik, a little exercise for young theologians. And the entire book is just about humility because it's going to be the thing you need the most of in, in ministry. And I, I, I think any creative field, um, Gosh, it could apply, apply there too. But there's this real sense of not only do I know a lot, but I know a lot about the most important body of knowledge in existence, you know, knowledge of God and the self and all that stuff. And it's just not true. We know a lot, but in comparison to all there is to know, we know very little. The Gospel of John, the way that the Gospel writer ends the book of John, he says, now, these are only a few of the things that Jesus did. And if I had to record everything Jesus did, The world wouldn't be able to hold all the books that would be written. I mean, just that alone should put into perspective what it is we're allowed to know. Um, Einstein said the important thing is to not stop questioning. And I think that is, uh, man, that's a guide to a rich life. It's a guide to your profession. It's a guide to your relationship with knowledge, um, but yeah, I do think it's a pride issue.
2: And isn't that what people have kind of done? They've stopped questioning things yeah. that are, you know, they're they're fed an idea and they realize that it's a maybe it's a popular idea among their their circle. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a teenager. You know, Jason and I grew up around the same time. People. Justin's older, though. Yeah, but a little bit. But uh, <laughs> people, we didn't really, we, we didn't believe in anything, right? Like our identity was not, I mean, we believed in stuff, but we weren't like, we weren't, uh, what's, the, what's the term? We, I don't want to use a conservative-sounding term. Um, <laughs> I want to use a, a more balanced-sounding term. You know, we weren't zealots. We weren't right. zealots for or against anything. If anything, we we wanted to kind of like question everything. The cool thing to do was to question everything. You weren't a Democrat. You weren't a Republican. And now it seems like a lot of the young people, you know, would never, ever, ever imagine anything but swearing total allegiance to one of those groups. And that's bizarre to me to think that that's the way young people's minds work today. Because that's not the way I remember it.
3: Right. Yeah. And I think that, too, is is a point of pride. It's changed, though. Right. It used to be like, so like in, the you know, 30, 40 years ago in the era um, you're talking about pride would come from and it still does, I guess. But pride would come maybe from uh, position or affiliation and a way to kind of combat that, as you were saying, is to distance yourself from that, you know, kind of be this rogue agent, not really. Associate well but now though it's changed to where like you're being alone or you're being sort of autonomous and you're being anti-institution. It's not it's not like a rejection of culture to do your own thing, it's an acceptance of culture that lends itself to a kind of association that sponsors even more problems. Right Like, like identity politics, for example. Identity politics and this idea that um, I'm going to position myself in the world based on what I am or what I think I am. I can't think of anything more pride-inducing than that. It used to be that you would at least join something bigger than yourself. And if you had pride, it was a pride by association. But now it's a pride that you literally conjure. Um, so like maybe like a, like the uh, – I was just talking to a student today, literally this morning. Who was talking about LGBT advocacy, and there was a, and we were getting this conversation about um, cross dressing and things like that, and how uh, anyone who cross dresses should not uh, have to undergo any kind of judgment. And I said, well, wait a second, by judgment, do you mean someone shouldn't have a, a different opinion? Like someone can't say, hey, that's weird or that's wrong or that's unnatural, whatever. He's saying that they should be just blanketed from all that. And they were like, "Yeah, that's no one's business, no one's right, and they shouldn't hear anything." "Well, number one, that's that's not going to happen in a free society. We're all going to have opinions. We should be free to express them. Hopefully, those opinions aren't hateful or judgmental or whatever. But you know, still, we First Amendment here. Right. And secondly, um, just because this person makes this choice, uh, let's say to be a, a crossdresser, doesn't in itself." validate itself uh but that's what's happening now choices are becoming points of pride so just because i associate with this thing or am this thing i should be proud of this thing it used to be that you got your pride from association with something larger than yourself right but now it's pride from and of yourself which is a whole different more uh, i think more nebulous um Culture—it's just—it's—it's it's hard to navigate. I think the pride is more deeply rooted than ever before.
1: It's interesting you say that. Uh, another quote from Lewis from *The Abolition of Man*. He says, "A great many of those who quote debunk traditional values have, in the background, values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process."
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: That's that's an interesting thing. Justin, a response?
2: Well, um, I, I can't. Yeah, no, I agree with C.S. Lewis always. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but what I find interesting is that I I also feel like – have you all 'all ever heard – I'm not a a gamer, okay, so I'm going to try to talk like a gamer and sound really stupid. Are you all gamers or even slightly gamers or –
1: I don't. I, I find no. that I have too many grown-up things to do. So.
2: <laughs> you are an old fogey. Oh, my god! I know. Okay, so <laughs> there's this term. It's called white knighting. Have you ever heard of that? No. no. Okay, so white knighting in the gamer community, and the fact that you guys don't know just makes us the least cool podcast ever. <laughs> um, but white knighting is when, like, for instance... Everybody is being really rude, you know, in an online session or whatever, and then they're just, you know, they're trashing some poor noob or not even necessarily a a new player, but just just they've picked somebody out to be horrible to, right? And so everybody's being horrible to this person, and then somebody comes along and stands up for the person, and it's all done online, right? So, right, right. so in order to disparage the person that's trying to stick up for someone, they call that person a, a white knight. You know, you're trying to come, you're trying to come to this person's defense. You're trying to make yourself look all, all wonderful and all clean and all, you know, virtuous. When really we're all just these awful people anyway. So let's just go ahead and act like it. Um, uh-huh. So white knighting is when somebody does does this, and I find that that it's interesting because you know online we're we're a lot of times we're hiding behind uh you know a username that doesn't really tie tie to us at all um and so we know that people tend to to act poorly on social media even if they're even if their name and face is up there sometimes um but I feel like you know white knighting uh is similar to what people do um uh today and I, i'm not using it in a, in a derogatory term necessarily uh but i do think that it's complicated because uh, we we have we have created situations where we say that um horrible things are happening you know and horrible things are happening in this world um although arguably not as horrible as have happened in 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 the past you know we actually are in a pretty decent place right now, if you think about it. I mean, nobody's been dying in trenches. We haven't been shooting soldiers for deserting the front lines, you know, as they run away. There's lots of things to look, you know, that that say things are looking up in in those terms. Um, And yet we have these social crises and and so forth. So Mm -hmm. I feel that to a degree, um, people, young people in particular, I, I think I went through this for a time, when you see something that you perceive as injustice, you get a big um I don't know if the term should be self righteous kick but I do think that there's self righteousness inherent in it a little bit you get a big kick out of out of trying to be a a uh a white knight for for lack of a better term and coming and saying you know I will stand up for this marginalized person I will stand up for this marginalized group the difference is the groups that are being marginalized today arguably even though there are still absolutely valid problems and and serious situations that still do need to be addressed it's not quite on the par with with some of you know it's not like like Martin Luther King Jr and and, and Selma you know what i mean we're not right. quite at that level but i think people desire to identify with Martin Luther King Jr and since they can't march with King then they're going to march with whoever is marching right now whether it makes as much sense to do it as it as it did then, or not? Let me make any sense. Yeah,
1: I, I I do think, yeah, I agree with the whole self righteous taking things that I don't know how to say it. I don't want to say not are not as big a deal, uh, but are not as clearly egregious as things in the past, where it, it seems now like any sort of Logical, ethical person would have seen, okay, this is probably not a thing. Where now, there's much more ambiguous things that are being attached that amount of pal- passion and self righteousness that perhaps don't quite deserve it. Uh, is that what you're saying? Is that does that sum that up in some sort of way?
2: Yeah, yeah, sim- very similar. I mean, like I said, I don't want to, um, I want don't want to say that A is not you know uh, valid, but. In many cases, it's not equivalent to to see. You know, um, for instance, <laughs> you remember the, te- the, the the movie from way back, "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" and um, and Chris what? Thomas King is this is this uh, musician that sells his soul to the devil. Chris Thomas King, by the way, still has some great music. You should go check him out on iTunes. <laughs> um, uh, really, I like a lot of his stuff. Um, but so I forgot what his name is in the movie. Is it is it? I can't Tommy Johnson Tommy Tommy, Tommy. That's right, right Tommy so so Tommy in this in this movie was not a victim of institutional racism okay right. he was a victim of the KKK fixing to kill him so <laughs> so my argument is institutional racism as bad as it is could be viewed as progress comparative to KKK trying to murder people now, right. should we still stand up against institutional racism? Yes. Yes we should. And and I and I do believe that that is, that, that exists. I know that there are, are some folks that say it doesn't exist. I think that they're wrong, but I don't know that it exists to the e- extent that every proponent of institutional racism believes that it does. So, again, you know, we've got lots of room for a spirited debate there. Sure, yeah. Uh I think what
3: uh, you're getting to though it's 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 really about scale, right? So, um, on one end of the scale is uh, Birmingham, Alabama, in 1961, and on another end of the scale, you know, closer to where we are, um, might be a protest against Donald Trump again against Donald Trump's immigration ban. Uh, completely different things and yet all just labeled with this notion of, you know, racism or some, some sort of component of racism, but the severity, the nature, the, the, you know, the, the, the vitriol, the, the direct like activity, it's a different thing, you know, turning a fire hose on to an African-American and imposing a, a band in the name of national security are two very, very different things. Correct. And yet the same word, right. Same label is being used to describe, describe both. Um, and go kind of circle back around to your white knighting people who stand for civil rights, uh, are kind of, uh, they're championing, you know, opposition to both forms of what they think to be, um, you know, racism. And I think, that that reveals a couple of things. One thing is I think, you know, this is the way God made us. I think that it's an argument for the moral law, and the moral law is an argument for the existence of God, that God made us to be um, uh, justice makers and and made us to stand up for cases and causes of righteousness. But in a society, you know, ideally that's cultivated through Scripture and uh Family raising, healthy family raising, and 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 community uh, that all believe in God and believe in virtue and nobility and things like that. In our age, though, uh, the compass is broken. Um, there's not that same kind of conditioning. So the desire is still, you know, Scripture says like God put eternity in our hearts. The desire is still there. Um, the moral will is still there. Um, but there's not the support system or the, the the social structure in place to guide those things anymore. So that that passion and energy that we're meant to exert toward true racism is now being used in this undirected, misguided. Uh, I'll use the example of, for example, uh, you know, it's probably a little controversial, but oh well, um, to conflate. The civil rights movement with current conversations about transgenderism, for example, is to me ridiculous. If I were an African-American, I would be deeply offended that uh, some would fly the flag of the civil rights movement when talking about uh, the transgender population. And we're and in that population, we're talking about something like 0.1 percent of the national population. Uh, national population that 's actually actually biologically uh transgender and yet that topic gets brought up as a civil rights issue and it 's spoken of in the same vein as you know marching on Selma or something like that it 's just ridiculous to me should there be a conversation about transgenderism and how transgender people are received in society absolutely is it on the same is it does it occupy the same place on the scale of racism and systematic injustice? Absolutely not. Um, but we, we don't have the, it's like our palate is off, like our compass is broken. We don't have the ability to, uh, to prioritize and systematize and categorize anymore. And I think it's because we're just raised now, uh, unvirtuously for the most part. I mean, the messages we get about, uh, what's true and good and beautiful and moral and what, should belong here and belong there. They're just all askew. Um, so white knighting now becomes, you know, even though at the heart of that, there might be some valid moral impulse, the expression is all jacked up.
2: Well, I think, That's, yeah, I, I think where where things really fall apart for me is that uh, the, the white knighting that happens in in uh, our modern society on these controversial issues, typically involves throwing people under the bus who right. don't deserve to be thrown under the bus without without a, a, some discussion. You know, you, you, we just say, "Well, no, we know all these things are true of you, even if we don't know who you are and I've never had a discussion with you," um, and, and so. Let, let, my, my grandma passed away, so I can I can I can out her as a racist because she's not with us anymore. Um, my, Fair enough. <laughs> my grandma was uh, was was somewhat racist. I mean, all all of the grandkids can remember. You know, she didn't make a big deal out of it, but from time to time, she would just say things that we would just it would drop our jaws. You know, we would just right. go, "Oh my! Thank goodness she <laughs> lives in the middle of nowhere." You know, where there's no place. <laughs> <laughs> she, she could you could drive for two hours and still be nowhere so so I guess it this is about the best place for her to be racist at i guess um you know, but yeah you know, so so now I'm going to defend my racist grandma, okay, just just for a second, remember she's dead, so you have to feel sorry for her um so she grew up you know hearing uh you know a very specific set of of realities taught to her, I think we all understand that when you grow up in a certain culture, and we could even talk about growing up in Islam or, you know, any other uh, system where you get taught very specific realities, uh, just how, just how, uh, how easily do we expect those people to jettison what they've been taught their whole life in order to align with our, with our sensibilities? You know, I think we have to recognize and i think it's pretty easy for a lot of people to recognize that if some if an immigrant just came over here from syria we don't expect them to renounce the quran right that's not right. something that we're asking them to do now we might ourselves look at the quran and say i cannot go along with these things i think these things are wrong um but we would have a built-in tolerance for this person who is coming you know from a radical change and I think we've seen a similar radical change in our society over the past, you know, twenty years. Because what was you know, we just look at the Democratic Party for heaven's sake? What the Democratic Party said they stood for twenty years ago, and what they mm-hmm. say they stand for today, is a radical change, almost on par with you know renouncing the Koran in some in some instances. So my plea for people who want you know to toss Grandma under the bus because she was slightly racist is. You need to give her a chance to change. Um, you know, there's there, are, and there are people who are less, far, far less racist than uh, than that, who still get you know saddled with that with that term because they voted for Rand Paul or something. Um, you know, not not that Rand Paul is anything, but um, sure. So I, it's just this: we're so quick to toss people under the bus, and we need to recognize that. That um, – I don't know what, what the term should be when we, when we do that, when we so quickly dismiss somebody or demonize somebody. It's wrong for all of us to demonize people uh, without having the conversation and, and, the, and the debate that you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, I think and, – and we need to close up. So I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going to ask a final question for you guys. For me, I – on speaking – coming back to social media, I talked about how I voted for a third party. Mm -hmm. And there was somebody who I respect who was very much in the, he was with her. And he said, quote, and I quote, you are the problem. You are the reason this tyrant got elected and you have ruined this country. And I'm like, (laughs) because I voted for who I thought was the correct person to vote for, I ruined this country because my one vote. Would have changed. So, and it's like out of one side of his mouth, because he also said you wasted your vote on a third party. So I wasted my vote on a third party. But because I wasted that vote on a third party, I'm also the demon who elected <laughs> Donald Trump. And it's like, wait a minute. Like, do I not have the freedom anymore to actually just vote for who I think is right? Like, do I not? Like, is that, does that make me a horrible <laughs> human being? And so I guess here's what I'm going to finish up. I want to ask you guys this what is one thing you think we could each do that would sort of bring back the healthy civil discourse? Like how do we bring it back to having it at keeping the issues on the table and not vilifying the other side?
3: Mm. Uh, I, I would say read books. Um, I think part of uh, this quagmire we find ourselves in is our our sensibilities, our imaginations, um our cognitive patterns, like everything about us is, is being conditioned by uh n- again, knowledge without wisdom or context. We just sort of soundbite everything. Everything's a tweet or a, you know, a status and there's no context, there's no documentation, there's no, you know, uh, wisdom attached. Um not to say that a Facebook status or social media isn't redeemable or it doesn't have, you know, wisdom attached to it it does at times but um you know see C- it talking about C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis said he was giving uh this young 7th grade girl writing advice and his second point of advice was read all the good books you can and avoid nearly all magazines hmm. um <laughs> And one being a uh, reason being, because magazines are ephemeral. Uh, they're just made to sell. They call some attention to something for today and are forgotten tomorrow. Um, good books, though, are meant to touch uh, the timeless, the you know the the unpassable. Um they're meant to get into matters of wisdom and life and truth. and so, um man, read good books, read history for goodness sakes, you want to understand where we are now, just brush up on your 20th century history and you'll see exactly how we got here. Um, and you won't be so quick to jump to conclusions about, uh, where we're headed tomorrow or the state of things now. Um, but I, I can't, you know, you've heard that maybe the phrase that oftentimes the smartest person in the room is the quietest. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's because uh, that person is, uh, One who has perspective through reading and and understands that things can't be captured or you know tweeted um, in in this knee jerk reaction, which you know that's pretty much how our society runs right now. um, That things have to be thought about, mulled over, and put in context, um, meditated on. Let's sort of give some you know. So Donald Trump. I am completely anxious about. I don't have much trust in him at all. But you know what? Let's see. Let's see. Um, wow. I, I don't know h- how he'll go down um, in history. I know someone needs to keep him off Twitter. But beyond <laughs> that, I don't know. He, yeah. might being, he might end up being the greatest president in American history when it comes to uh, fiscal policy. We'll see. I don't know. Um, let's let time decide and let's get some context. And in the meantime, you know, keep reading the books.
1: Awesome. Justin, other than Justin, did uh, want to tell you, Corey, that he was really impressed with C.S. Lewis's last work,
3: which was the screenplay for Sausage Party. <laughs> right? That was his last. That was a posthumous uh, film that they found after he had died. He was gotcha, gotcha, <laughs> hidden away somewhere.
2: Oh man, that's that's the one I'm reading to my kids right now. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> so Justin, what do you think? What is the one thing we can do?
2: No, I I, I like I like what Corey said, and I would just say, you know. It, what he already alluded to is you know after you've read those good books um have face to face conversations with people um yeah. because when you try to you know make inroads on social media and you just you're just a bunch of words on a page and sometimes that that can work especially if you like i tried i tried to you know kiss butt for ten sentences and then make like one slightly critical sentence and then you know and then kiss butt for another 10 sentences. And sometimes that, that'll get you a, a little ways. But when you're face-to-face with somebody, um, I think people see that there's more meaning in in you than, than just your words. In fact, uh, that's a, a quote from a, a friend of mine, is that meaning is in, is in people, not words. And I think what he means by that is that, um, you know, quite regularly you can read something on, online and take it the wrong way um and, and and or or people just are maybe poor writers but um when when you're talking to somebody they can tell whether you care about them or not and if they see that you value them enough to have a good long conversation and and will engage and listen to what they have to say then i think that they you know we we don't write each other off that way usually you know we're not so quick to 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 write somebody off and throw them under the bus so to speak so yeah those, ha- read those good books and then have face-to-face conversations about them in the real world.
1: Awesome. Well, that's, uh, thanks so much, Corey, for being on. Now that we have figured out how Hitler escaped the bunker and made it to Argentina, go check out Corey at www.amazon.com, Corey Latta, and Justin at campus.murraystate.edu slash recording services.